Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where the guests are unique, but the goal is the same, learning through engaging conversations with interesting people. My guest today is Brad D'Antonio, better known as Man Overseas. Brad is 40 years old and has been retired for five years. You heard that right, he retired at 35 after only 12 years in the workforce. In normal times, Brad and his wife travel the world living off passive income from their rental properties and other investments in the U.S. Brad also writes a blog at manoverseas.com and has a growing podcast by the same name. It's not often that someone is able to retire so early. It takes a special type of persistence and determination, or a mamba mentality, as Brad explains it. In this wide-ranging conversation, Brad and I discuss financial freedom, journaling, parenting, social media, and much more. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brad D'Antonio. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you. This has been a long time in the making. Um, for listeners, give them a little context. I've had the pleasure of being on your show three times, and I'll link to those in the show notes. And over the course of the last two years, we've become pretty good friends. We talk quite a bit and are always bouncing ideas off of each other. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Likewise. I think it's so important to have friends of all ages, and you provide that window into the millennial way of viewing things, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it, it's it's good to have older friends, younger friends. And, and for people my age, I'm 28, I think it's actually more beneficial to have older friends um, to see you know how people have been successful and how you can follow in their in their footsteps. So where are you recording from today? I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana. Why why New Orleans? My wife and I travel full time. We've been staying in Airbnbs for 30 days at a time in different places around the world until COVID hit. And since COVID, we've been staying in the hometown where we're from, which is Houston and traveling to Mexico because we're so limited as to where we can go. We've had to cancel our trips to, to Europe three times, but we also spend time in New Orleans because we love New Orleans and I have some family here. So it just so happened to work out where my mom and my stepdad, my stepdad took a job in Corpus Christi, Texas, and will be there for a year. So in order to help my parents, help my mom pay off their house and keep them from putting it on Airbnb, we said, hey, we'll rent your house for the next year. We'll stay here. And I happen to have a friend who's an OBGYN that's about an hour drive from here. So that way we'll be able to have our baby delivered in January with a doctor that we know. So it all kind of works out perfectly. And we love her house. So we're enjoying it thoroughly. That's so cool. I, I, so I knew you were in New Orleans and I knew you were renting a place. I didn't realize it was your mom's place. So that's, that's really cool. It is. So you're going to be there for a year, you said. Yes. Nice. All right. So you you don't own a primary residence, right? That is correct. Okay. You you and your wife kind of bounce around. So I just want to make sure I'm setting the stage correctly here. You are unemployed, homeless, and expecting your first, first child? That is correct. Yes. I quote unquote <laughs> retired in April of 2015. And at the time, I had a primary residence that I leased out. And I moved all of my stuff into the property of mine that generates the least amount of income. Mm. And so that was sort of my storage unit. And when my wife and I married, we moved all of our stuff into that quote unquote storage unit. 
and have since leased out all of my properties and got an actual storage unit that we pay $80 a month for and travel around the world. And so now we're stopping in New Orleans so that we can have a child. And then as soon as my wife is up for it, we'll start traveling again. Nice. Wonderful. And baby in tow. There you go. You know, I'm just busting your ass about, you know, being homeless and jobless, mostly because (laughs) I'm jealous. (laughs) I, I say it about myself all the time. I it's, it's awkward explaining to people what your life is. And so in order to avoid sideways looks, sometimes I just short, short circuit my answer and say, we're homeless. We're, I don't work and just let them think I'm a loser. I've never really cared what people think anyway. So yeah, they look at me sideways and then usually move on from there. Yeah. That's, uh, that's probably a good way to handle it. But I mean, I, so I think these are all great things. Uh, you retired at 35, you're 40 now and you know, that's, that's astonishing. And it, it flies in the face of pretty much all conventional wisdom. So I, I want to dive more into that, you know, your, your thought process behind it and how you tackled it and what you do now. Uh, how old were you when you decided you wanted to retire early? When I stopped working, it wasn't my intention to fully retire. I was going to take a year off. But when I came back, so I was taking a year off to travel the world. And when I came back, on fire, ready to go, replenished, you know, I had recharged my batteries enough to, to, to just wanted to conquer the world when I came back and found out that the person that I had become wasn't valued by corporate America, which is really interesting, right? Because here I am thinking I've added so much ammunition to my repertoire in terms of how I was able to learn and grow in traveling the world. And quickly came to find out that I was put into a box. And so the jobs that I wanted, they didn't want me, or at least they weren't willing to pay me. And the jobs that wanted me, I didn't want them. So I was I was caught in the middle of ready to go back and then valuing my time so much that I was unwilling to accept very little pay. For the asset that I'm providing, which is me. I mean, I know my work ethic, I know my ability, and I wasn't going to sell it cheaply because I valued my time so much. And one of the things you realize when you travel around the world is that you don't need that much money to retire. As soon as your expenses are covered by passive income, you are effectively retired. There's no magical retirement number. That's a farce. It's, it's strictly, can you cover your expenses and if you can, then you are retired, if you want to be. What was the disconnect from the time where you left uh, the working world at the top of your prof- profession, making a lot of money, and one year later when you came back and they didn't want to hire you? I mean, what was fundamentally different about you that you couldn't get the same job or were you not looking for the same job? I was looking for a similar job, but in my line of work, which is sales, You've probably heard the old adage that sales managers want the person who's in a lot of debt because they want that leverage over them. So go out and buy the Porsche, go out and buy the three-story house. I want you desperate for money so that you're going to work 12 or 14 hours a day. What I bring to the table is not that, obviously, right? I was saving and investing a large portion of my income. But what I do bring to the table is a desire to be great. 
and be the best that I can be and help to solve people's problems. I've got a a Mamba mentality where I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard than you're going to hold me. And the questions that I was asked in the interview process told me that we're not on the same level. Like if you're, if I'm required to, before I come on board, talk to quote unquote, the girls in HR and the girl in HR giggles and asks me, so uh, like, what are, do you think you'd be okay working from home? And it's like, Hey, we need to get on the same page here. Like I'm coming with a Mamba mentality and you're asking me if I'm capable of staying off Netflix at 10 AM. You see what I'm saying? So they just, if I'm going to blame them, they're not asking the right questions. But at the same time, it's incumbent on me to convey what it is I bring to the table. And it was just hard to do because I'm anomalous, right? You don't encounter people every day who have taken a year off and they have the mindset that they're taking that year so as to develop and grow and make themselves even more valuable to the marketplace. But that's how I am. I, I like to be on 12-hour flights so that I can write and think and and evaluate my investments and and all of this stuff that that portends growth. And that's what I was accustomed to and that's what I'm used to. So I very much have this blue collar mentality. Like in in high school, I was coming out of high school and I didn't have any scholarships. And so I walked on to play baseball somewhere and then I earned my scholarship in college. And then I came out of college, I didn't have any job prospects. So I took a commission only job. Like you're not going to hold me down. I've just got this fire inside that's going to produce. And the disconnect is that you've probably never met anybody like me, or at least... the overwhelming majority of your sales force isn't like me. And so you don't know how to interview somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So it seems like you kind of transformed from the person coming out of high school who didn't have the, the scholarship and coming out of college who didn't have the job. You were kind of that person that the sales manager was looking for, right? Like you didn't have the Porsche and the three-story house, but you had a lot of financial pressure probably. Like you needed to perform to put food on the table and a roof over your head. And then over the course of your career and this this one year off, you transform into the person who doesn't have these pressures, um, but you're actually probably performing better than 95% of the other salesmen in, in that industry or, or at that company. And it seems like it's probably because you've created some room to reflect and to think and to strategize. Um, So you've clearly operated well in both roles. Which one do you find yourself to be more effective in? And do you think most people are like that? Well, I think that you want a business person who is high in conscientiousness someone who wants to serve people and do what's right by them. And what I added to my repertoire was added empathy, added preparation, uh, realizing what it took to get me to where I am, and then harnessing that and seeing how I can utilize it to get even better in the next phase, which I imagine to be probably management and then VP, CEO, you know, on that sort of track. I think by saving and investing a large part of your income, in order to do that, generally you have to be disciplined 
and conscientious because you're keeping a budget. You're doing things for yourself that nobody's requiring you to do. And so once you, once you start to create options for yourself, like let's say, let's say you're working in sales and you suddenly have a half a million dollar net worth. Well, I can do some math pretty quick, realize I'm living on three thirty-five dollars $4,000 a month. And I can see that if I were to walk away from this job, I could live for the next 12 years without any problem, right? Before I ran out of money. What that sort of mentality enables you to do is take more risk. And so if you want somebody on your team who is bold, who takes a lot of risks, who is going to speak up in meetings, who's going to challenge you a little bit, who's, who's open-minded and wanting to grow, they want to bounce ideas off of you and, and strategize, then that's, then I'm your guy, right? So I just felt as though this time off gave me a time to reflect on all of that and realize what I brought to the table. And if I'm viewing myself objectively, if I'm my own agent, I'm promoting this guy as having all of this that was willing to build on what he already had and like as conscientious to take the time, reflect and figure out how he's going to get even better. And those are the sorts of things that I did. And then coming back to the, to the corporate world and talking to people about going back to work, they talked to me as if I'm not only average Joe, who doesn't realize that I wouldn't be able to do this if I wasn't committed to excellence, to thinking I'm even worse than average because what kind of idiot walks away from this kind of money and from this sort of career trajectory that I was on? Who does that? And so I think it just kind of boggles the mind and, and that's where the disconnect exists. So do you think that plan of walking away and taking a year, do you think that backfired? Because when you came back, the, the people who were kind of the gatekeepers to the new position just couldn't understand it. Backfired? If I was dead set on going back to work, yes. There are certain professions you wouldn't want to work in if you were going to take a sabbatical of any sort because they do want the person who fits the mold of what I'm talking about. Sure. They want leverage over you. They don't want the, the salesperson to have leverage. And in all candor, which is something I pride myself on, which we can get into that later. That's something that you realize when you get out of corporate America, just how just the lack of candor and how people are walking around being dishonest all the time. But backfired if it was my intention to go back to work at any cost, then yes, backfired big time. But what that experience told me was that I'm going to have trouble working for someone whose values don't align with mine. And that's exactly what I need. Like if, if somebody were to try to hire me tomorrow, not only would it take a lot of money, but it would take somebody who views the world the way that I do in terms of you watch Kobe Bryant talk about greatness and get fired up. You watch The Last Dance and get fired up. The Michael Jordan documentary, 
Yeah, it was great. I need somebody who probably came from a sports background who doesn't need somebody breathing down their neck in order to excel, right? We're a special breed of person where we're going to get shit done because I'm going to hold myself to a standard that you can't even hold me to. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like yeah, It's no, almost that, like it has to be a peer, a peer-to-peer relationship almost. Sure. I, I think that's really hard to find in the corporate world because so many people are bogged down by debt, like you talked about, and they're just kind of clawing to get to the next level so that they can buy the new Mercedes. But that's a good, that is, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's a, it's a good point. And so my advice to a recruiter, if you're looking for the needle in the haystack, is to ask better questions. And I think a great question would be, tell me about your habits, or how did you get to where you are? Mm. Or why did you do this? You know, things like that. Open-ended questions. Don't come to the table with preconceived notions of if somebody takes a sabbatical, they're probably a counterculture loser, a dropout. Right, right. Because there is a lot of that going on. You meet people traveling that are trying to find themselves or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm a a trendsetter. I I go my own way. You're uh, blazing trails. Trying. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, but I've always been unique in that I have varied experience, experience and I've recorded it and I've always tried to grow from my experiences. Yeah. So your, your ability to be in this situation comes from what we might call the position of fuck you. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and uh, on my uh, MacBook screen here. <laughs> that water out. That was awesome. So, so that term comes from a video that I sent you a couple weeks ago, and it was this this remake that J.L. Collins did. And for listeners, J.L. Collins is he's a guy who has done a lot of writing on investing and, and stocks and that kind of stuff. He has his famous uh, series called the Stock Series, which is like an introduction to investing in equities. And he, he also wrote a book I think called The Simple Path to Wealth. So he he talks a lot of, about a lot of basic personal finance concepts and strategies and that kind of stuff. So anyway, he did this remake of a scene in the movie The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg. And I haven't seen the movie, so I'm not going to try to explain that part of it. But basically, he's saying like, okay, you take your two and a half million bucks, you throw 80% into VTSAX, you put 20% into bonds, um, you don't buy a house, you rent, you let the landlord take care of the expenses, you don't buy a fancy car, you buy a shitbox, and then you keep some money in the bank to cover your expenses. And what this does for you is it puts you in a position of fuck you. And what does he mean by that? He means that when somebody asks you to do something you don't want to do, um, the person who needs money is going to have to do that. The person who has money is going to be able to say, fuck you. right? And it's, it's not the idea that you want to be able to tell people, go fuck yourself. Like You still want to be a nice person, but you want to have the ability to do that. You don't want to ever have to act out of necessity. You only want to be able to act out of desire. So this concept to me has like really solidified in the last six months. Um, I sold some rental properties that I owned and got a, a good chunk of cash. And now I, you know, I haven't purchased my freedom yet. I couldn't walk away from my job and be good forever. 
um, but I would be good for a long enough amount of time where I'd be comfortable walking away if I had to. And I think this is a huge realization that people don't understand until they're actually in that position. It lifts a huge amount of stress off of your shoulders. So can you talk a little bit about um, when you had that realization and what it felt like for you? For me, it was gradual because I had been tracking my net worth for 12 years. And so it wasn't a sudden, oh, I'm financially independent. I'm now going to quit my job and travel the world. I had properties that were paid off that would cover my expenses for a long time. And the reason is because I kept my expenses low. For many years, I was living on $2,200 a month. And so even though I might have made five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in a month, I was adjusting my lifestyle deliberately up or down. So if I got a $10,000 check, I'm forcing myself to spend two of it because part of life is living. Part of life is lifestyle. So you should take your girlfriend out to a nice dinner and valet park. You should do those things once a month if you're making $10,000. But at the same time, I'm going to use $8,000 to save and invest. So I think when you have reached a point where you are financially independent and you're still working, yes, it, it breeds confidence. Yes, you, you can have the same mentality of a Kobe Bryant who, despite making $30 million a year, it doesn't change his character. He's still going to have that fire burning inside that's going to get him to practice early, mm. that's going to have him staying late that's going to have him motivating his teammates, that's going to have him win. He's got a winner's mentality. He's got a growth mindset. He's studying referees and, and where they position themselves so that he can optimize his play so that he can be a better teammate, setting his, setting his teammates up better. All of this comes with financial freedom because money solves your money problems and then you can not have to worry about money at all. So then it enables you to focus on other things, right? When you're auto investing into Vanguard every month, let's say, you don't have to spend time studying individual stocks, just as an example. So the FU is always there, but a high character guy is not going to say FU. He's going to not be afraid to suggest something in a meeting, let's say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's that's great. And I, I think what it allows you to do is act consistently with your values, whereas otherwise you may not be able to. Precisely and authentically, right? right. This is the real me. I have no reason to lie to you. Right, right. So in, in the video that I'm talking about, he said, Collins says, don't buy shit you don't really want to impress assholes you don't really like. You, Brad, wrote a really good article um, that's kind of similar to this, and it was about buying a Porsche. Can you kind of tell that story and talk about how the, the situation played out? Yes. Yeah, so when I was a kid, I had a poster of a Lamborghini on my wall, and I'm pretty sure I had a Porsche too. But I, can't, I lived in a small town, so the only people with money were doctors or lawyers. There weren't VCs, for example. You know, There weren't business people that were killing it. So there was this one man who is a, the father of one of my best buds 
who drove a Porsche. And every time we drove by his house, I saw that Porsche in the garage. And I just love the back of it. Remember that that streak of red where it would say Porsche on the back of a 911? Mm, I just thought yeah. that was so awesome. And so I thought whenever I make my own money, whenever I start building wealth, I'm going to buy a Porsche. And when I got to where I was working and realized that people might be driving a Hummer and that they weren't necessarily rich because credit was so easy back then that you could make $60,000 a year and still afford to drive a Hummer, right? It's just a matter of how you want to allocate your money. If you want to live in a tiny studio apartment and pay $750 a month, but then have a $1,500 a month car payment, that's your prerogative if they'll lend you the money. So I quickly came to realize that it doesn't, uh, driving a Porsche at 26 years old doesn't indicate wealth so much as it indicates stupidity because of compound interest. Mm -hmm. So if you put that money into an income producing asset, that $60,000 or however much the car costs is going to be worth five, seven, 10 times that amount in 30 years. And you're going to really appreciate having put that money into the market rather than spending it on a depreciating asset. So I must have been 29 years old. I went to the car dealership. I had $80,000 liquid cash sitting in my savings account. And on the way to the car dealership, I was thinking about how this was going to be the last time I ever drove my Nissan. And I didn't put gas in the car because I know that they don't give you an extra 50 bucks just for filling up the tank. You don't get a thank you for that. So I went to the dealership and the sales guy was your prototypical sales guy that nobody likes. He was pushy. He used every little closing technique in the book. And he really turned me off to the idea of purchasing this Porsche. But I still was going to go home to think about it. And I let him know that. Mm. Well, on the way home, I stopped to get gas to put gas in my car because I was running on fumes. And as I'm standing there pumping my gas, I'm scrolling through my email and I see that I have an auto notification of a property that matches my criteria just came on the market, an investment, a potential investment property. Three bedroom, two bath, single story, 1,400 square feet, exactly what I'm looking for in a, in a decent school district. So I decided in that moment that I was going to take that $80,000 and purchase a house instead that would provide about $1,000 a month in, in free cash flow. And I would have that $1,000 for the rest of my life and the rest of my kids' lives and possibly their kids' lives if they hold on to that asset. And so I can remember as a kid, my grandma, who also invested in real estate, she was telling me that she paid like $5,000 for this property in New Orleans. And wow. unfortunately, that property was flooded in Katrina never to be revived again. So she packaged it with another property and sold the two for $80,000. But that property for 40 years provided her with quote unquote mailbox money, which we don't call it mailbox money anymore because it's easily deposited into your account. You don't even have to put effort of walking to the mailbox, right? So from that aspect, real estate investing is even easier than it used to be. So rather than buy the Porsche, I bought the property and I did some math to see how much money it's put in my pocket over the last 11 years since I bought it. And I want to say 
in total appreciation, I bought it for 70,000. It's worth probably 150 now. That's an $80,000 gain in, in net worth. You add the monthly payments up, it comes to something like total of 108 months. It's like, shit, I don't remember the number, maybe 72,000, let's say. So from buying that asset, I have an additional net worth of $152,000. And that's not counting the property itself, which was a $70,000 purchase. So you've got the appreciation, the cash flow, and you still have this tangible asset that is going to provide income for the next 40 years or 80 years, whatever that my heirs decide to do with it. So the, the Porsche is now worth roughly, if it's driven conservatively, about seven or $8,000. So that's a difference of about quarter of a million dollars, just from that one decision that I made when I was pumping gas as a 29-year-old. What a swing, man. You could buy three Porsches for the, the price of the Porsche that you passed up on. And that, you know, that, that's the prime example of delaying gratification. I love that. I love it. So Brad, I want to I want to jump into journaling a little bit because it's a habit that I've picked up this year, largely thanks to you, and you've done a decent amount of writing about it. And in one of your pieces, you say that if you had to attribute your success to one thing, it would be journaling. Why journaling? Because of the benefits, they are numerous. I feel the same way about journaling as a tool to live a better life, live a bigger life. I, I feel it's as important as exercising regularly. I mean, it's, wow. it's that key. I think it's a keystone habit from which all your other good habits could flow from. So just like prayer or meditation or however it is that you exercise your mind, reading, journaling, note-taking, all of that provides a similar benefit for my mind that exercise does for my physical health. Is it the practice of writing itself or is it going back and seeing what you've written or, or what is it exactly that's so beneficial? Well, that's a good point, right? You're starting to name the benefits and I don't even know that if one is more valuable than the next, but you start to talk about going to the gym and it's like more energy, more friends, more confidence, look better naked. It just goes on and on and on. Well, with journaling, it's sort of the same way. It's like clearer thinking, better decision-making, remember people's names, building a network. I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on. So Sure. What is your specific practice now as it pertains to journaling? And what was it when you started? And then what has the evolution been over, over the time that you've been journaling? Your daily practice or, or weekly practice or whatever it may be. When I started, it was so bad. My first ever journal entry was September 7th of 1998. And I had just moved in with two roommates. And it says... I just moved in with Mark and Jeff. Rent is $590. Jeff has two red tail boas. I have my own room. And like, that was it. My next journal entry said, Mark McGuire just hit his 62nd home run. And pretty much that was it. And so that's how it started. I knew that the habit and consistent writing was more 
beneficial than trying to get creative and and writing an essay because it's supposed to be for me. It's a it's a tool for me to live the best life possible and understanding that nobody else is going to read it if I don't want them to. Mm. And so I bought a safe and I knew it's it's going to be locked in this safe. And if I want my heirs to read it someday and there's stuff in there that I would rather they not read, like let's say I'm having trouble with an ex-girlfriend or something, well, I'll just black it out and they can read the other stuff. And I, I, there's just so many benefits. And, and maybe the biggest benefit now is being, to, being able to pay it forward and getting other people doing it because they're starting to tell me about the benefits that they're getting. And it's just so huge. It's so helpful in a person's development. It is the best tool for, coming, for becoming a student of your own life. And I think that that is the best school there is, is your own life. You're intimately familiar with every aspect of your life, but you won't remember what you learned unless it's documented. And once it's documented, then revisited, well, then you will have seen a quote 15 times, let's say. So you come across a quote, like my favorite quote in my life is a Catherine, what was her name? Catherine Mansfeld. This was 2004. I don't even know where I read this, but as soon as I read it, I grabbed my journal and I wrote it down because I knew it would benefit me. And it said, make a rule of life never to regret and never to look back. Regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only good for wallowing in. So if I revisit that quote every year on December 31st, by the time I'm 35 traveling the world, I realize I've read this quote at least 11 times and reflected on that quote. It's internalized. So when I come across a situation in life where I start to brood over a decision that I made in the past that affected me in a way that I wasn't expecting, I won't dwell on it because I'll flash this this quote in my mind and it'll help me to get over it, right? Regret is I'm wasting energy by spending time thinking about this stupid thing that I did. So I want to get better and not, not only not make that mistake again, but I don't want to waste 10% of my life with thoughts of this, this instance that didn't benefit me at all. Yeah, I, I love that. I, so I remember when I was in, had to be maybe 10th grade, and I was stewing over something. I don't even know what it was. Um, and my grandparents were visiting. And my grandpa said to me, worrying is like paying interest on a debt you may never owe. And, you know, that was probably 15 years ago now. And that quote is just in my mind almost every day. And I think it's quite similar to the one that you're talking about. I love that quote too. I'm afraid though, what happens is the rich get richer. And what I mean by that is those like yourself who realize the benefits are going to be the ones who engage in this behavior, this habit, and are going to benefit most. Those who are not capable of, of appreciating a quote like you just read to me are going to be the ones who don't journal. They're going to be the ones who use the internet for ill purposes. 
So I'm, I'm of the opinion that we're living through the golden era of self-directed learning. We have access to all this knowledge in the world. What's going to separate you from others in terms of personal development is going to be how you use that most powerful tool ever created. And one of the ways is to shut off everything, turn your notifications off. I, I don't understand why anybody would ever want notifications on their phone. But that's, yeah, another, that's another line of thinking. But yeah, all that time you spend mindlessly scrolling could be spent journaling. And I'm telling you, when I go back and read my 2006 journal, that is so much more valuable to me and probably future, you know, my kids. It's so much more valuable than anything I could have been doing online at that time, where time just flies, right? You don't know where the hour went. Yeah, for sure. And so another thing that stands out to me about journaling is that almost any time you read a good biography, like I recently read the the Pat Tillman biography by uh, John Krakauer. It was fantastic. A lot of that biography was based on Tillman's journals, right? And if you read, you know, a presidential biography or or a, a biography of anyone really, whoever wrote that biography probably relied heavily on the subject's journals. Mm. Biographies are usually written about people who are successful in one way or another. So if all of those people are keeping journals and I'm not, I'm probably doing something wrong. <laughs> Such an excellent point. Yes, there are so many very successful people who kept journals, and they wouldn't have done that if they didn't see awesome benefits. For sure. And when I started doing it, the early returns were so vast that there is no way that I was going to stop doing it. And I, th I think that so many aspects of life are this way. Once you see the early returns, you're going to commit to a lifelong exercise of doing it. Sure. Yeah. So you, you recently wrote an article on your 40th birthday. Um, I think it was called 40 pieces of advice to my 20 year old self. And I don't know if they were in order of importance, but number one in that list was keeping a journal. And you wrote, um, you'll want to look back and see what you thought was a big deal and what you believed and what you predicted. So my question to you is, what did you think was a big deal that turned out to be inconsequential? And then on the other side of that, what did you disregard that you should have paid more attention to? That's a thoughtful question that I would be shortchanging if I gave a glib answer. So the first thing that comes to mind would be, I thought that you would meet your wife in college mm. or at least have met either married your high school sweetheart or your college sweetheart. I didn't think the prospects for a good woman were good beyond college. And I say that for a few reasons. In college, it's very homogenous. A lot of people are just like you. They think like you. They're going to the same school, obviously. They're experiencing the same football games that you are. They're studying for similar tests. When you get in the real world, you get multicultural dose of everything, all ages, all backgrounds, pursuing different lines of work. There's not a man doesn't have as much status in the real world. And women, believe it or not, are attracted to men with status. So 
goes back to the conversation we were having before we recorded about how people in small towns tend to get more likes and comments on their Facebook posts. Mm. Well, a lot of that is because they see each other all the time and you're much more likely to comment on somebody's post if you've just seen them within the last few weeks. So that could be the benefit of living in a small town if that's what you're after, if you're, if you're after online popularity, let's say. If you have a small community, you have status in that small community and therefore it'll boost your standing. And of course, the rich get richer. Hate to keep bringing that up, but the it's popular kids tend to yeah get more popular. So all that is to say, to put the bow on that, I, th- I think I was, I thought I was going to get married shortly after college. And I'm, I'm working with young people now who are in the process of getting married very young. And I think about how differently my life would have worked out had I gotten married. And so going back to the question earlier about where was the disconnect with recruiters and, and job prospects when I wanted to go back to work, there's a stigma attached to those who are not in a stable relationship. You know, young people who are going to the bars three or four nights a week and getting drunk are not as career focused. They're very focused on their social lives. And so I thought that that was going to hurt me career wise that I wasn't married. And I come from a background where people get married very young. Yeah. And and it's just the, the opportunities to meet someone who shares your values are, are much more. I mean, like, 500x more in college. So I was kind of thinking, well, I missed my opportunity to get married. Maybe I'll just never marry. I'll I'll just be, I'll move to Chicago or Manhattan and live that life where I become ultra successful. But, you know, if I decide to do it later, I'll be like just a more handsome George Clooney and just marry when I'm 58 and have kids. (laughs) A more handsome George Clooney? Yeah. So (laughs) So modest, Brad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I introduce myself on the podcast, on my podcast that way sometimes. You're not so humble host. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think that I thought that that was part of the process. Like that's the next phase. And it turned out I could, that couldn't be farther from the truth. As a man, your value goes up in the, market, the dating marketplace as you age. So when you're 32, you'll have your, your – pick of many options. Whereas when you're 25, you're competing with 32 year olds and it's harder to get a date and you'll get left. I was, you know, cheated on twice in my twenties with older, more successful dudes. And that's because, well, that's another line of thinking too. But the short answer is you don't have to get married when you're 24, 25. In fact, Mm -hmm. it probably will behoove you as a young man to wait. I, I think that's a good point. What was your other question? Sorry. So what did you disregard that you should have paid more attention to? And you seem like a pretty thoughtful person, so maybe maybe you don't really have a good answer for this, but Well, I remember the producer for Bigger Pockets when she was asking me to come on the show, what were the big mistakes that I made? And it sounds so arrogant to say that there were none because there were always little mistakes, but I've never wanted to use the excuse that I was young and dumb. I thought mm. that that was, that was immature. Like 
you you're basically the same person that you were when you were 12, 15, 21. You've matured, you have more knowledge. But I, th- I think that little kid is always in you. He's still there. And when you journal, this becomes even more clear because not only do you see how your thinking has changed, but you see how you're the same. So I, it's, 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 I again, I'd hate to give you a glib answer, but there, there, there's nothing major that stands out because I tried to preempt it by talking to older, wiser people and documenting what I was learning. Most of what I've learned about relationships and women have, have really benefited me later in life. I wish that I had learned that stuff 10 years sooner. So I'm, I'm sorry, that probably doesn't answer your question, but I, I, don't, I would need more time to think about it. No, that makes sense though, because to be somebody who was able to retire at 35, you couldn't have made a lot of mistakes. So it makes sense that you would struggle to, to come up with an answer to that question. But I, I really like the point that you made about seeking out older people and kind of like figuring out what their mistakes were so you didn't have to make the same mistakes yourself. I mean, that's such a powerful thing. It's good to have a mentor. It's good to have older friends. I love that. Well, I, I made a lot of mistakes in baseball when I was playing that had I known certain things five years sooner, I would have had a totally different, better career. Mm. So I took that knowledge. And again, I started journaling when I was in college. So I, I took those feelings of almost like FOMO, like I missed out on X, Y, and Z because I didn't know A, B, and C. So what is it that I can learn when I'm 22, 23, fresh out of college that would keep me from experiencing the same feelings when I'm 31, 32? That makes sense? Yeah. So, yeah. I like that a lot. So how do I get that information, that knowledge as fast as possible so that I preempt any big mistakes that I made playing baseball? Yeah. So this this relates to a conversation I had with Morgan Housel on, on the podcast and we talked about this idea that any of like the big inventions of the 20th century were things that were totally disregarded at the time they were being created. And, and the big example of that is the Wright brothers inventing the airplane. People basically either thought they were lunatics or just didn't pay any attention to them. And then they created this thing that turns out to like fundamentally change the world. Like it changed warfare, it changed travel, it changed business, it changed everything, literally everything. And one of the things that we talked about is like, hey, what is that technology now that is developing or is is you know on the cusp of developing that we're totally disregarding? Because you can look at that from an investing perspective and say like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously and I'm going to get behind it and I stand to make a lot of money. I mean, I, I think that applies the same to the same thing that you were just talking about. Agree. Yeah, people are arrogant to think that they can predict the future. I'm always going the other way when somebody speaks with certitude. I've worked for people that just knew what the stock market was going to do or knew mm. what was going to happen after a certain president was installed. I mean, that once you've, you're old enough to have witnessed and experienced that sort of thing, it, it gives you fresh perspective that you wouldn't have gotten if you didn't pay attention to what people said and you weren't able to look back and think what you thought about what they said then and how you're encountering it again now, this 
this arrogant prick who, who absolutely knows what's going to happen in the next year. If we've learned nothing else over these past 10 months, it's that we don't have a freaking clue what's going to happen next. And so all you can do is just optimize. You have to think probabilistically and set yourself up to where if you were to live this life a hundred times, are you successful in at least 17 of them? And so that's what I try to do is think probabilistically and just optimize for the best decision possible. A lot of times you're going to get it wrong, but try to learn from other people because people are happy to share where they've failed and where they've had success. And pretty much anybody who's had success has written a book about it. So it's a good point. It's a good point. So you're about to become a dad for the first time. And my impression of you is that you've been preparing for this job for decades. (laughs) Do you feel prepared? Yes, I do. Actually. I, for years have had to listen to, well, you just wait until you're a parent. Oh, dude, I hate that. Well, I think we all hate that. People are so smug. It's like, oh, wait till you have a job in the real world. It's like, dude, fuck off. Right. And it (laughs) never came true, right? Like it never, you never realized what they were talking about because you're a different person. You handle things differently than they do. And you can't explain that to people. But there are little things that you pick up like, your friend talks about their kid and then wants to show you a picture on their phone. Well, I've seen friends of mine who have berated that person, not in their, in front of them, but to me, like, can you believe this dude? All he wants to do is show me pictures of his kids and I couldn't give a shit. Well, if you talk to that person and you say, Hey man, people are poo pooing you for showing pictures of your kid all the time. They would say, oh, well, you just wait. Like, they'll see. Once you have a kid, you just love them so much, you can't help it. Well, I'm going to be cognizant of that when that time comes. And I'm going to know that my friends don't want to see nonstop pictures of my kid. So, it's, it's almost like a lack of emotional intelligence where people can't put themselves in other people's shoes or they, they, don't, they can't make adjustments to based on how they're going to look and feel five years from now because of this new addition to the family, like everything changes and all of a sudden you're just overwhelmed with emotion and you're going to do everything according to how everybody else does it. And it's just, it's just crap. The flip side of that is when you go out, like I've been out on a double date before and had my date, like let's say the, the other couple was a married couple with kids and had my date who's never been a parent talk about parenting as if, They've raised three themselves successfully, and it's just so transparent that they're full of shit, but you're never going to tell that person. So the other side of that coin is I can understand why people get pissed when they try to speak so confidently about how someone should parent having never been a parent. But again, I'm just going to try to optimize. So I'm going to think probabilistically and create hopefully the most optimal situation based on having paid attention to what the most impressive men or the men that I most respect, how they handled their kids, how they raised a successful child, because you can raise a, you can do everything right. Your kid could still end up drug addicted. Mm, They could still do something really stupid that paralyzes them for life. So you have to be conscious of that and, and think through these things. Like I've had buddies ask me, um, 
how are you going to give your kid the, the ability to deal with adversity that you had, despite them not having to deal with the same adversities that you went through? And it's like, that's going to, that's something that you're really going to have to think about once your kids arrive. And I'm like, dude, I've been thinking about this for 10 years. It's not something that, oh, wait, I have a kid now. I need to think about this. But it just tells me that, that many people project because that's how they would be or that's how they were. They waited until they had a kid and then tried to figure this stuff out. Whereas I think, again, you can preempt a lot of this stuff by studying it ahead of time. And I know things change when the kid arrives. I've been told 5,000 times. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm still going to incorporate all these ideas of different people that I've learned from and then make the most optimal decision for my child. I hope this makes sense. And, I, and I'm going to enjoy- makes perfect sense. I'm going to enjoy listening to this after the fact because they think that everything that I think now is going to be foreign to me once I have kids. I don't think so. I still think that you can, at least to some extent, put yourself in other people's shoes and think about, you know, I'm going to have this, this human that is entirely dependent on me 24-7, 365. So, you know, I've heard Morgan Housel talk about how you can't predict how you're going to think and feel until you've lived through something. Well, I think that's true to some extent, but I also think there are things that we know without having learned them, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I think that the people who really have trouble when they have kids are the people who haven't been able to take care of themselves. Like they don't have any personal discipline. They haven't been able to maintain an exercise routine or, or a, a balanced diet or a scheduled sleep routine or built any habit that required discipline and grit and resilience and and persistence right so if if you've been able to demonstrate those qualities in you know in your work in your personal life in in whatever and you've built those muscles then as a parent you just apply those transferable skills right and you know this might come off as very naive of me to say this because i don't have children and and maybe i'll listen back and say you know what yeah i was a total idiot uh, but like you said i don't, I don't think that's going to be the case I don't either. And I don't think that you should have to preface what you say with, now, I don't have children. You might say, you say, I don't think you should have to do that. I take into account that you have thought about these things and you've paid attention when you were around other parents with kids. And so I know everything changes when the kid arrives, but that's not to say you still can't do 7% of the work before the kid even arrives. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So mm -hmm. you're not brainless and clueless. And I would never say, oh, Joseph Wells, he doesn't know shit about this, but he's talking about it like he knows. Well, no, I'm not. That's arrogance to me. That's conceited. Like, give somebody the benefit of the doubt that they've at least put some work into it. I'll give you another example. I was on a flight with a buddy of mine, long flight, so we had a lot of time to talk. And we were talking about his child. And I said, oh, well, I have a an idea there, but you would probably dismiss it because like my brother would say, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You know, you don't have kids. But I said, I learned this from a book and I think it's so smart. And this person that I learned it from is a parent. And they said, and this was actually Mr. Money Mustache, who's like the mm. fire community guru. Yep. He said that the way you can get your kid in good shape is by attaching an odometer to their bike 
and then paying them a quarter per mile. And I thought, that is genius. I love that idea. And so if I share that idea with a friend of mine, they shouldn't discount my opinion just because I'm not a parent. You can mm. still get good ideas that can be shared and, and benefit you. So somebody like the, the folks that I just described are not open-minded enough to even consider someone who read something from a book because they don't have kids and they're, they're harming themselves by doing that. So when I told this story, I did preface it with, hey, I read this in a book, but I thought this was such a great idea and then tried to sell them on the idea. And then they said, oh, that is a good idea. Now, they're not going to implement it, but I am going to implement it when I, when I get there. And it's because I'm thinking probabilistically and, and trying to optimize for the best life possible for my child. Yeah, I, I love that. And that, that thing specifically teaches your kid a number of lessons, right? It, it teaches them that they should get out and exercise, gets them out from in front of a screen, and it teaches them that they can earn money. They have agency over outcomes, right? And then it's going to put money in their hands. So that starts another conversation. How do I manage this money? How do I spend the money? That kind of thing. So I, I think that I love that idea. And that's something that you've actually told me before. And I listened to the Mr. Money Mustache podcast uh, with Tim Ferriss. Fantastic. That's, that's an excellent episode that everybody should check out. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. So Brad, what do you think is the most important lesson or skill that a parent can teach a child? I had this conversation with a buddy yesterday about how something I worry about is not demonstrating for my kids a superior work ethic that was mm. demonstrated for me by my dad. So I think that I can do it by the way I'm living my life now, because believe it or not, I do work hard, but it is very flexible and I can work at any hour of the day. So that is something that I'll have to put pen to paper. I'll have to get in my journal and think through how it is that I can best do it despite having to go out and work for someone else. Because 20 years from now, I don't want to look back and say, I wish that I had spent half as much time chasing deals, investments, or working for someone else rather than spending time with my kid. Because although my dad demonstrated a superior work ethic for me, and I think it helped to instill that same, those same principles in me, I do wish that he and I had more time together when I was little but he was working till after dark a lot of nights. So it's a, it's a balance. I think that's something that's you know, easily addressed with a conversation though, because kids, kids are very perceptive of, of things like, you know, dad gets up in the morning and he goes to work. Whereas dad gets up in the morning and he walks me to school and then he opens his laptop or he opens a book or whatever. It's harder to, for them to understand that that's actually work, right? Like if they don't see you going and pounding nails into a board or going and sweeping a floor or stocking shelves or what things that are like very easily for them to equate with work, they might not understand that you're actually working pretty hard. 
but you can have those conversations and explain that to them. And then I think they would understand it. Right. And, well, and even like show them your output too. It's a good point. However, I think someone with kids would probably tell you that you're being too rational. So you and I tend to view the world through the lens of rationality and this should work because it makes sense. I don't know if that's always applicable in the real world. So I'm the same way. I, I would like to think that I could talk my kid through, hey, I, I started working this morning from 7.30 to 11, and then I was able to spend time with you and your mom. And then from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., I was on work calls. And what I'm doing there is X, Y, and Z. I think that when we get to that point where we have a child, it isn't always easily articulated or at least understood and sometimes it needs to be felt like they need to feel like dad is working hard and that's why he can't be at dinner tonight. So I take what you're saying and, and I believe it, but this might be one of those occasions where somebody would tell you, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about because you've never been a parent, which I don't like because I think what you're saying has merit and I'm going to be implementing that to some extent because I, you and I think a lot, a lot alike. So it's, it's still something that's going to have to have a strategy, I believe, because my dad never really told me about his work ethic. I totally just witnessed it. Right. Yeah. So interesting comment on this conversation. I saw a tweet recently, and I think it was from Paul Graham, and he has, I believe, two kids. And he said something surprising that he learned about parenting is that you can talk to kids basically like they're adults and they understand almost everything that you're saying to them. So I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I just wonder what it's going to look like in practice. Yeah. And Twitter is an amazing tool because we do have access to conversations that somebody as successful as Paul Graham is having with his kids. I mean, how helpful is that? It's hugely it's beneficial. So cool. And again, that's the situation where the rich are going to get richer because you and I are going to go to, to Paul Graham's Twitter feed and see the interactions he's had with his kid. Somebody who isn't as autodidactic is not going to take that initiative to do that. Their mm -hmm. Twitter feed is going to be filled with sports, for example, and Ebonics and just BS. And so it's, it's not developing them or their kids at all. And what that's going to create is a widening of the wealth gap, for example, because the rich get richer. So here, here's a question that you commonly ask that I want to pose back to you. Social media, net positive or net negative for society? I'm going to answer the same way I just did, which is it's up to you how you use the internet. It's the most powerful tool for building wealth, relationships, knowledge. You want to become a better father, a better employer, a better reader, whatever it is where you want to improve, it can be found on the internet. Social media has benefited me immensely. So after I met someone on a ferry in Thailand in 2014, I got their Facebook. They lived in Britain. I contacted her. When I went to Britain, she lived three hours south of London. She came and got me from the train station three hours north took me to Stonehenge, took me to her family's house. Um, I had dinner with their family. It's a cultural experience I never would have had if not for Facebook. When I went to Africa to volunteer with, with orphans there, 
I stayed with her mom who was living in Zambia. It's an incredible experience. Zambia has, I believe it's either Lusaka or Zambia. Lusaka is the capital. It has something like a 10 million population. Whites, what they call whites and blacks, whites make up 10,000 of the 10 million. Wow. It is such an interesting cultural experience. It's so rich. And I would not have had that if not for that meeting, that chance meeting on a ferry in 2014. So it just depends on how you use social media. That's just an example of how it can enrich your life by staying in touch with people. And that, you know, will lead to something else. And and that something else will lead to something else. I think it's just an incredible tool. Like one of the things, as you, you know, I'm a personal coach now. One of the things I have my students or clients do is journal. And one of the goals that we set is how many people you're going to meet each week. And the reason I want them to do that is because I did it and it benefited me greatly, but it helps you to pay attention to what people are saying. I want them to write down a name. I want them to underline the name. I want them to write something about them and watch how it improves your life over time. So the first time we did it, the kid told me that he, he met a guy from Venezuela and he was telling him uh, about what was happening there in terms of communism and explained Hugo Chavez. This kid didn't know anything about communism. And so I was able to explain to him why I think he should go to Prague and go to the Communism Museum, why he should go to Vienna and Budapest and see all of these areas that were behind the Iron Curtain so that you can learn about the ills of communism and why it's not preferable to a free market capitalistic society. These are things that you don't learn unless you take the initiative to learn. He would not, if he didn't have the goal, he wouldn't have had his reticular activating system going to where he knew he needed to write down this person in his journal, report back to me. But because he did that, it, it allowed him to learn some things that he wouldn't have otherwise, which is going to lead to more learning, which is going to lead to a Facebook relationship, which sounds, which sounds ridiculous now. But who's to say that he won't need a place to stay in Zambia four years from now when he goes to volunteer somewhere? So I think social media can greatly enrich your life. It's just a matter of how you use it. If you're using it to argue Facebook, um, sorry, argue politics all the time, then it's a net negative. But, you know, I had a, a, a Nichols, a nickel, a college baseball coach on my podcast recently. And I asked him that question and he said, net negative. And the reason he said it is because one of the ways that he uses it is by assessing a player, a recruit's character. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And I had asked him the question, if, is this how you, is this a tool that you use to assess a kid's character? And he said, yes, but we not only look at the kid, what's probably more important is we look at the parent's social media and the social media doesn't lie. And I thought, isn't that interesting? How many parents consider whether when they stay up late at night arguing politics on Facebook, that that's going to be considered by their kid's prospective college coach and could determine whether or not their kid gets a scholarship. That's pretty crazy. It's a big deal. So it's, it's new. It's a fascinating experiment in, 
anthropology, sociology, whatever, but uh, to live through it and document it is, is just incredible. So to answer your question, yeah, it just depends how you use it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of back and forth on this. I, I watched um, The Social Dilemma on Netflix a couple months ago. Have you seen that? I haven't. It's really good. It, it talks about mostly like the evils of, of social media and how addictive it is and manipulative and, and that kind of thing. And for people like you and I who are generally out to learn and out to find some different perspectives and have interesting conversations and that kind of stuff, I think it's really, really great. And it is a net positive for us. Um, now, this isn't to say that I don't just spend time mindlessly scrolling, right? Because I think we all do that. But I think the majority of people are using it for um, not to learn, just to kill time or to kill brain cells or, or whatever. And I, I think, I don't think it's doing society any favors, especially when combined with uh, the ability to have it on your phone and just be looking at it all the time. I think it's very bad for uh, social skills and interaction and, and anxiety and mental health and all that stuff. So I think right now I would say it's a net negative, but for me, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a very positive thing. Well, you make a great point about the communication aspect of it, because I do notice among us a new crop of human, which is when you go to a conference and you meet some of these people who have status now because of the internet and because of these different groups that you can form, you realize that even the most popular among them is a little bit awkward. And I attribute it to the amount of time spent in a screen. And you and I have talked about this on Twitter. Twitter has its own little status hierarchies that weren't around 10 years ago. So you can build a following of 30,000 people and then all of a sudden you have this status that you've never had before. And if you've ever worked for someone who's never had any power or never been the popular kid in school, it's glaringly obvious. They don't know how to handle it. And so, as you said, if you're somebody who can handle it well, it's great. But to see people have status for just forming their own group and providing value to their niche, it's just it's it's all so new to us that it's blurry. Like 35 years from now, we're going to see this all more clearly. And I'm afraid that that we we're not conscious enough of how this is impacting human relations because it is having a huge impact. Extreme literalism, lack of eye contact. People don't really focus on building relationships anymore. It's more surface level likes and comments. So mm -hmm. I think it's taking the place of, of human interaction that is essential to a good life. But that's my opinion. And this kind of ties back to what you've said a couple of times today about the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I think you've actually written about this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you talk about how like, you know, the people who are able to use it well and to manage it, like, for example, I recently deleted the Twitter app and the Instagram app from my phone. I only want to be able to use it when I'm sitting at the computer because otherwise I'm mindlessly using it. Every time I sit down to take a shit, I reach into my pocket instinctively to just scroll through my phone. So I tried to eliminate that. But anyway, the people who are using it uh, in a controlled way, in a positive way, are going to skyrocket in terms of performance and wealth and, and social status and everything. But the average person who's using it is going to enter this downward spiral and just become a fucking dud, basically. So I think it's going to really amplify what already exists. 
So true. Some of the smartest people I met in my 30s are not on social media. And I think there's a direct correlation. When I go to make coffee in the morning, it's usually just before eight o'clock. I can see through my window. We live in these little shotgun houses in New Orleans where the person next door's window is right there and you can look right into it. And I can see the neighbor reading a book. And I think if we had a window into everybody's home where we could see how they spend their morning, that would really enlighten us to how different we all are and how our abilities are different and how we all have access to the same amount of time in a day, but everything depends on how you spend those hours. And I've, if I went and looked right now, what is it, just afternoon? Mm-hmm. Most people are either watching football, mindlessly scrolling on their phones, but you would see him with a book in his hand. And 10 years from now, he's going to be in a place that the guy who is you know, mindlessly scrolling isn't. And it's going to be in a much better place, I think. It's pretty cool. The power of delayed gratification. Indeed. Wow. Always, you always have to be mindful of, of your time and how you allocate it. The same way you have to think about your finances holistically. So if ever I start to concern myself with the fact that I'm not charging enough for my coaching or the wife and I need to buy an SUV because we have a baby on the way, one of the calming influences is thinking of your net worth and realizing that this is part of the plan. You've thought this through. You have to remind yourself that you've done the work. So I think your, your time is the same way. You've got to think of your life in not just daily chunks, but over a lifetime of how much time are you going to spend mindlessly scrolling on your phone? If you look back 25 years from now and realize you've spent four and a half years of 25 scrolling mindlessly through social media, you're just not going to have the kind of life that you had hoped for. Yeah, it's scary. And even, you know, myself being somebody who is at least cognizant of it, I'm sure I'm spending way too much time on there. It's it's addicting. It really is. I think we all are. I think we all spend too much time on there, but you you don't have access to what people are doing. You don't know if the guy next to you is working or if he's looking at pictures of of women on Instagram. So everything depends on how you're utilizing your time. Do you have the self-awareness to know how you're spending your time? Can you catch yourself when you've been mindlessly scrolling for 30 minutes and say, oh, wait, this isn't how I want to spend my time and put the phone down and grab a book? Yeah. So I I recently heard Tim Ferriss ask this question and it got me kind of thinking about it a lot. Um, What is the biggest thing you've changed your mind on? Can you give me a topic? Well, it can be anything. How about I give you an example of a few of the things that I've changed my mind on? Okay. So, and this kind of ties into what we were just talking about. When I was younger, I used to think that watching TV is a good way to spend your time, right? Like I enjoyed watching football or I enjoyed um, flipping on the TV and scrolling through the channels until I found something that that was interesting to me. Um, within the last four or five years, I have basically stopped watching TV. I stopped paying for a cable subscription. And I think it's actually kind of despicable to turn on the TV without 
knowing what you want to watch to just flick through the channels until you say, oh, I found House Hunters. Yeah, let's let's kill 30 minutes watching this. Mm-hmm. So I used to think TV was a good way to spend your free time. Now I think it's a terrible way to spend your time. Um, another example would be um, now I think you should only buy a vehicle if you can pay for it in cash. So four or five years ago, I bought an F-150, really nice truck, $40,000 truck, but I didn't have $40,000. I had enough for the down payment and I had an income that could cover the monthly payment. So I was like, yeah, I'm good. I could afford it. And technically, sure, I could afford it. Um, now, I don't think it's responsible to buy a vehicle unless you have the amount that that vehicle costs sitting in your bank account and you can write a check for it. So th- those are a couple of the things I've changed my mind on. I learned so much traveling the world that I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have realized how mimetic we are, how much we're influenced by our surroundings, how much of what we think is directly influenced by our surroundings. So the fact that in Houston, everybody drives a nice car, everybody that I know has a nice car. And when you go to a place like Bolivia, you realize nobody drives a nice car. And they don't even, I don't even know if you could find a nice car if you wanted to buy one. But why do we do this? Why do we spend so much money on cars? Is it, is it because it enhances the experience? I mean, we're really just trying to get from point A to point B. And so how did we get to a point where we're paying $600 a month for a car payment when we could be doing so much better with that money? Like how, how did that get into our minds? I saw a video the other day of people in line to pick up free food. I think it was in New York actually. And everybody was driving almost a brand new car and you saw a bunch of SUVs and they were in line for hours to get a bag of free food because of COVID, I assume. Mm -hmm. But only in America will you see people driving really fancy cars to go pick up free food. And that's what disgusts people about working at food banks or volunteering somewhere and, and somebody comes in with, with really nice rims on their car and here you are helping them to pack their, their SUV up with, with discounted or charitable groceries. You know, and, and it, it makes people disgusted. But how, how you allocate your money is up to you. And so traveling just makes you realize that in America, we don't even have poverty. We have relative poverty. So something I've changed my mind on is just realizing how much we're influenced by our media and the way that things are in our immediate surroundings versus if people went and had the experience that I did in Africa, they too would see things differently than I do because you've experienced people eating a staple food two meals out of a day and people who are wearing clothes that have holes in them and they look malnourished and they have a look about them that you've been told indicates that they were born with HIV. And and then you come back to America and you realize all these people take for granted what we have here in America. 
and you wish that they could have this experience so that they know what abject poverty is. Because then you could never be lied to again about things like food insecurity. Because our wealthiest, our, I'm sorry, our poorest zip codes also happen to be the fattest. Well, why is that? And so it, it just gets you thinking in ways that you hadn't otherwise. So I've changed my mind in that I used to think that you could read about this stuff and come to your own conclusions. But sometimes, like being a parent, you do need to experience it firsthand. There's only so much that you can get from books without witnessing it firsthand. I like that. That's a good takeaway that you need to experience things to fully know about them. You can't just read about it in a book or hear from somebody else. That's good. I like that. Well, some things you can know, I think, without learning them. It's almost like you can feel them. You know, there are certain aspects of emotional intelligence. When you're in a conversation and you see microfacial expressions, like that sort of thing, when you have enough experience, it happens in slow motion and you can pick up on the emotion that they're having. And then you can, you can harness your own emotions to, to create the most optimal outcome just based on all the experience that you've gleaned through the years. And you can categorize people. Like I had a tenant or no, he was working for me for the blog. And he told me one time I had criticized him for something. And he said, oh, well, unlike you, I don't judge people. And I thought, you go through your life not judging people? How, are, how is your life going to turn out if you never judge people? So the other thing, sorry, I'm, I'm going to add to, what, to my answer from earlier. That's but good. Another thing you realize is that people just walk around being dishonest all the time. So like the people you think are your friends at work, and believe me, I'm not clueless. Like I have a good a good radar for who's genuine, who's not, who's my real friend, who's not, you're not going to believe, and most people won't get this opportunity, but you can't believe once you get out of the corporate world and you're no, you're no longer of utility to someone, they're not your friend. Mm, and it's yeah. going to boggle your mind. Like, I can't believe that we really weren't friends. But there, there are, you do have a true friend or two there, but 80 to 90% of people are not your friends. But it almost doesn't, it doesn't matter if you'll never come to realize differently because most people are going to work till they're 65 and retire, travel a little bit, and then their time is done. So it, it doesn't matter. You just partake in the illusion that everybody else is in. So when you, when you come out of America, when you can look at it through a a foreign lens, let's say, from outside of America, there are so many things about America that you realize are, are the way that they are to make things grow, to, to make things prosper. Much of what we do is just to raise the standard of living of everyone. So when it's 11.30 p.m. and you're stressed out about an email that your boss needs from you or whatever. There's absolutely no reason to be stressed about that. But we, we put that stress on ourselves by overscheduling and, and pressure to rise the ranks in our career or whatever it is. But none of it really matters. When, you know, when your health is struggling, you just want to be healthy. 
your career is not going to matter. Your career, they would replace you in less than a week, but you're giving it at all, giving it your all, stressing yourself out, hurting your long-term health. And for what? You could move to Mexico next week, live happily ever after in solitude, and America would not even care. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the movie A Bronx Tale? I have not. There's a a scene where the kid is like concerned about Babe Ruth or something like that. And I think it's his dad says to him like, why do you give a shit about Babe Ruth? He doesn't care about you. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the same. That's a good point. I think it's funny when people get like so twisted up about shit that goes on with celebrities. It's like, why do you care? They don't give a shit about you. They don't know who you are. Like, just live your life. That's it. And that's one of the things you realize traveling is that nobody's paying attention to you. You could never step foot back in America again, and your life would be just fine. We hold these people's opinions of us over our own heads. I'm sure you've heard Naval Ravikant talk about how guilt is just America's voice in your head. Like, it's what is guilt? It's just something that you've been conditioned to feel. But it's BS. It's, it's evolutionary history that has us being afraid of, of being ostracized from the tribe. But now it doesn't matter. So this is part of like why you want FU money so that you never have to feel guilt again and you can just live freely and, and speak your mind. If I was worried about getting a job, I probably wouldn't have said a third of the stuff that I'm saying here today. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you're saying. So, Brad, one of the things I really liked about the last few episodes of your podcast that I listened to was you asked the listeners if they had any questions for you. So, do you have any questions for me? Questions for you, yes. Do you think that you will homeschool your kid? Oh, man, it's funny that you ask this because I, w- I was going to ask you where, y- where you want to send your kid to school or if you'll send them to public school. So, I don't think I will homeschool my kid because... I don't think I could give them as good of an education as they can get from a school. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to be able to teach them math or science or maybe even reading as, as well as a teacher could teach that to them. Uh, I know about myself that I'm not an excellent teacher. I'm pretty good at doing things, but I'm not always good at, at teaching those things and things as important as, as math and reading and, and, science where you really need to understand the basic concepts and be taught in a way that you know is logical and and is a, a, a pedagogical method right I don't think I'm going to be able to do that very well um, will I send them to public school uh, I don't know it kind of depends where I'm living I went to public school I think I got a great education I don't think there's anything wrong with it um, my fiance went to private school her siblings went to private school. They're also pretty smart and have done well and gone to college and are successful. So I think I will send my children to school. I don't think I'll, I'll homeschool them, but I don't know exactly what the education will look like. How about you? I think if we're traveling, which I hope that we are, that you could probably put in three hours a day of homeschooling. And I think some of that is trained, at least I hope so. And that my wife would be very good with the basics of what you just talked about. And then hopefully I could give our kids some life skills. And then the rest of the day be more of an immersive cultural experience wherever we are in the world. So at least for the first few years, that is what I would target. But if they turn out to have 
a talent in some area where schooling would be required or necessary, then yeah, we would probably get them into a school where they could practice whatever it is that's that skill set is. Yeah, I think an ideal setup, like if you had an unlimited amount of money, would be hire a tutor to be wherever you are to teach them those those basic things that they need to know that maybe I wouldn't be that great at teaching them. Knock that out in a short period of time, like you said, three hours or whatever, and then go do immersive things. Because like people like um, Seth Godin talks about like the real education starts when the kid gets home, you know, and and the type of person that your kid is going to be is determined by whether you're going to plop them in front of the TV or whether you're going to make dinner with them and have a conversation with them and teach them how to bake cookies or, or whatever, you know? Um, so I think a lot of time in school is wasted and, you know, you, you kind of learn how to fit into a system, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what type of person you are. So a lot of moving pieces there. I, I think I would be open to just about any, any option. Yeah, I always find it interesting that immigrants who move here and have success starting businesses, let's say, tend to want to send their kids to Ivy League schools, and they want their kids to become doctors rather than merchants. Mm. And I'd like to think that maybe I could go the other way. If I, if I did well as a merchant, of course, we don't call them that anymore. We call them business people or salespeople. I would like to think that maybe I could raise my kid to do the same rather than be a doctor. I don't, I don't know that my kid, just based on the way that I think, will think a doctor is is so prestigious that they chase it at the cost of their health, for example. Yeah. I, I do know doctors that are in it for the right reasons to, to serve humanity, but I also know doctors that will tell you that you need sinus surgery when you don't, and they have a Ferrari payment and things like that. But a lot of doctors go to an early grave because they stress themselves out when they're in their 30s and 40s. They work too many hours. Mm. Uh, they get themselves on the hedonistic treadmill and feel as though they need to live up to their prestigious title, purchasing the big house and the fancy car and the trophy wife and all of that. So I don't know. I just I want my kid to be happy. One of the things I've come to realize, too, is that we always talk about wanting happiness for our kids, but does it matter all that much? Like, is, is my dad's life any differently because I've been able to do what I need, I want to do and live a happy life for myself? Does that increase the happiness of my dad? I, I just don't know about that. I bet it does. I think parents take a lot of joy in, in the, the happiness of their children. I, maybe, probably, yes, but to what extent? I don't know. To what extent do you measure any happiness, though? True. It's a good point. Any others for me? How do you think someone my age, like what's the biggest difference between people my age and people your age, your perception? So you're 40. I'm 28. Um Boy, that, that's tough because you have to speak in generalizations, right? And uh, Yeah, you have to speak in generalizations usually to have a conversation. I wish people didn't feel bad about that, but that's sort of the dishonesty that I see in America all the time is that people are afraid to speak 
honestly and openly because they're afraid of speaking in generalizations. There is nothing wrong with doing that. Of course, there are exceptions, and they shouldn't need to be pointed out all the time. This is my opinion. But yeah, go ahead. Speak in generalizations. It's okay. Yeah, no, I... I... It's not that I have a problem speaking generalizations. I guess I'm just not entirely sure how I would want to answer that question. I mean, maybe I would say that, and this might apply to people that are a little bit older than you, um, but I think people my age are more inclined to take financial and career risks. Um, And maybe it's because we have fewer responsibilities, or maybe it's because um, we're much more comfortable with technology and we can learn things a lot quicker. But I think once you get to a certain age, and I don't know what that age is, maybe, it, maybe it's 40, maybe it's a little older, maybe it's a little younger, it's harder to pick things up as quickly. So you're, um, number one, supporting a lot more responsibilities usually, and number two, not as, as quick of a learner. So you, the perceived impact of taking a risk is much higher than it is for somebody who's 28. So you're less likely to, to, to t- take a chance, I think. I agree. All right. What, how about, oh, sorry, did you have anything else? Uh, what is the difference socially? Like, do you notice anything different interacting with people who are older versus people your age? No, not really, because I think it really goes to type of person, not age, because I've seen plenty of people your age who are like this looking at their phone because they're addicted to it. And I've seen plenty of people my age who leave their phone in a different room and have a good conversation with you. So I think it's it's less about age and more just about like emotional intelligence and, and conscientiousness, because there are I have plenty of friends my age who are like, like one of my good friends is he works in sales and he's great to have a conversation with. He can talk to anybody and you know, he's not looking at his phone when he's talking to you and his social skills are excellent. He's a year older than me. Um, and I, I work with some people who are probably closer to your age who are like total fucking weirdos, you know? So I, I don't think the social thing has as much difference uh, with age as it does just emotional intelligence. However, people who are closer to like, 21 i think there might be some uh social ineptitude there because those people have grown up knowing nothing but technology that's interesting what is your target net worth for you to strike out on your own leave corporate america yeah i've been thinking a lot about this um I don't know that I have a number in mind um, because I don't know that I would necessarily go out on my own. I think what I would be more inclined to do is take a position that I thought I would enjoy, but that might pay a lot less. And I could do that right now. I just haven't had an opportunity where I'm like really excited about taking it yet. So, I I mean, I think I'm at the point where I could do it now. Uh, Striking out on my own, I don't really know what I would do on my own right now. So I haven't thought of a net worth target for that. Interesting. I see a lot of young people niching down fast and it's really intelligent of them. Take Alex and books, for example. Mm. When you pick a niche like that 
and then you can get authors on your podcast. So the the Instagram books guy, uh, yep. what's his name? Alex and books. Nicholas Hutchison. No, well, I was oh, thinking of oh, Alex oh. and also the Bookstagram guy. I'm having trouble yeah. remembering his Instagram account. But they both have niched down in order to really benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And if I were in my 20s, I would probably do something like that. If I were one of these media, online media type personalities, which I'm not. I mean, I'm a personal development sort of encompasses a lot of things. But if I needed to grow the business, I would definitely niche. And then you realize how much you can expand from there because he's getting to talk to James Altucher, uh, Morgan Housel, you know, all of all of what they're doing as as books being the central theme. But you're just talking human to human after all, right? Right, right. So you're getting to really network with some big time players by niching down. So I'd, I thought that you might go that route. Because I know your podcast is the Joseph Wells podcast, but if you did something about like David Perel's online writing, like if you focused on that, I mean, how much has he been able to grow his network through what he's doing? It's it's just fascinating to witness. It's amazing. Uh, For me, I don't think I have a deep enough interest in one one thing to to niche down, but uh, but do they? Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a See, good point. I think they, they're probably just using it as a marketing ploy. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. And and For I me, don't think it, that they're reading all these books. I mean, nowadays with Blinkist or whatever, you can you can read summaries of books and say that you've read them, and then and there's just no way you don't have time to do that much on Instagram and read all those damn books. There's no way. And that call me cynical, but I've read a lot, and I know how long it takes to read. No, I think you're right about that. I I don't have any interest in I, that. That feels like selling out to me. And Alex and I are friends, so I, I don't. Ditto. Really, you know, I don't. I don't want to put him down. I think what he's doing is great, but I'm just not interested in in building up a huge following at the expense of of doing something that I enjoy, which is learning about a bunch of different things. Because I feel Thank like you. I can have I can have interesting conversations with just about anybody because I know a little bit about a lot of different things. And I mean, David Pearl's the same way. Alex is probably the same way. They can probably do that too. Um, but I don't need to make money doing it right now. So that's the difference. I'm just gonna, yeah, I think I'm just gonna keep doing what I enjoy. Ditto. All right, I, I want to hit you with some uh, like rapid fire kind of fun questions, and then we'll sure. wrap it up. Let's do it. What What book have you given most as a gift? Mastery by Robert Greene. Ah, interesting. Is so was that after the 48 laws of power? Yes, I think it came out in 2011 if, I, if I'm not mistaken, but I've given that book away recently. Uh, I've started giving books away to people who leave a review on Apple Podcasts mm. and that's the book that I've been buying most lately. Interesting. Okay. Overall, it's probably The Richest Man in Babylon, but that one's fresh on my mind. Okay. Yeah. Th- those, uh, I haven't read Mastery, but I've read 48 Laws of Power. I like Robert Greene a lot. And Richest Man in Babylon is excellent. What advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to graduate? Understand that you need to sell internally as much as externally. As soon as you get a job, introduce 
yourself to people in different, as, in different parts of the company and find out how you can best serve them. So by doing this, you're digging your well before you're thirsty. You're, you're coming to them unthreatening and asking how you can help them. That will do more for your career than anything else I can think of because your grades no longer matter. The value you bring to your employer and the marketplace are what matters. And if you're pleasant to be around and people like and respect you, you'll never have trouble landing a job. Your first job might be through LinkedIn or Indeed or one of those, but more than likely your next job is going to be through your contacts. So build your contacts and do it by way of service to others. I like that. All my jobs have been through my contacts. And that, that advice in particular, is it's really good. I, nobody else has said that and it's not something that has like I've thought about really but that that's great advice I like that there's per- a lot that I I could help people with that is not being utilized and I feel bad about that sometimes so like my wife has the potential to be Megan Kelly or somebody like my wife is really really smart she has high business acumen but she it's not being used and that sometimes feels like we're selling out like we're not giving our what we do well to help people but at the same time people aren't willing to pay us for it so we hold back but you see what i'm saying like there are so many instances when i'm talking to people who are having a problem at the office or whatever and i'm like oh i could really help you with that but people don't call and ask me for advice with work stuff anymore they used to call me once a week at least. But now that I'm not in the workplace, they don't think that I could, you know, they don't think of me to help them, but I really could help them. So it, it's a weird place to be in now that I've been retired for so long. Yeah, I could see that for sure. And last, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, man. My wife just surprised me on my birthday and let me know that she was pregnant and it was completely unexpected. She had to keep it from me for like three months and I don't know how she did it. And thinking probabilistically at all times, I didn't think that this was the time. And to, to be told on my 40th birthday that it's just a gift that is never going to be topped. So that was really kind of her and the way that she thoughtfully did it for me. It was just unbelievable. Sounds really nice. Brad, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you and it's even more fun when we can record it and put it out for other people to listen to. And hopefully they feel the same way. Hope so. So where can people get a hold of you if they want to talk more, or read your writing or listen to your podcast or all the above? Sure. The podcast is Man Overseas Podcast. Spelled just like it sounds. The blog is manoverseas.com. My Twitter and Instagram is at man underscore overseas. I've never gotten a DM that I haven't replied to. So if anybody needs help, just shoot me a DM or an email and we'll be in contact. Happy to help anybody. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Brad. This has been a, a lot of fun. You're welcome, buddy. I enjoyed it too. Keep in touch. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. 
I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening. Thank you.